Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Glad to be here. With us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee is Lee Younger. The, there's a there's a really, you know, troubling, questioning tone in Jed's greeting that I'm not feeling very confident about. Glad to be here. <laughs> Again, I know we've, we've mentioned this the last couple of episodes, but now that we're we're over 600 in. I like that Jed is starting to deconstruct the form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> Exploring, <laughs> taking podcast intros to strange new places, lest they get stale. <laughs> Got to keep it fresh, man. Got to keep it fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a, a great show for you. We've got some of your fine questions, but first... Speaking of keeping it fresh, I have to declare a dessert-based emergency. Oh, no. What? Wow. Now, is that emergency that uh, recently the Taco Bell Corporation did its version of, like, TV upfronts? I was like, here's a bunch of stuff we might be doing. And one of them appeared to be a uh, picture of, and I'm not making this up, a Baja Blast, like, pie. Oh, don't tempt me like that. This is what I'm saying. Is, Is the emergency that we have to keep this? From being a reality in Jed Brewer's worlds at all costs for his own good. Yes, that is an emergency. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought Taco Bell up, Matt. I know you have places to go with this emergency, but I have. I have been thinking recently. I've been wondering, like, has Jed been slacking on his Taco Bell consumption? Because one of the things I've noticed in the past few months is Taco Bell's marketing is using punk rock. Yeah. As all of their background music. And I'm like, are they are they taking a new tack to lure Jed back to the border? Like, are they like is is Jed trying to get control of his life and you know, trying to be self-disciplined and like, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna go get cinnamon twists on a whim today. And and then all of a sudden there's really, you know, solid punk rock on these commercials, which I've never really seen that on any marketing ever. I really do love the idea. And I think this would make a good Netflix series of a person like myself, who's made many questionable food-based decisions being like, you know what? I'm not a kid anymore. I need to be responsible. I don't want to have indigestion all night, every night. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to be more responsible. And then the evil food corp is like, what if this advertisement was brought to you by no effects? Like, damn it. <laughs> well, that, that is interesting. I haven't, heard, I haven't experienced these advertisements, but punk rock does seem like an interesting fit for Taco Bell because of the level of energy involved. Yeah. Like, Taco Bell to me has more of a a Tom Waitsy kind of <laughs> the cure counting crows. <laughs> the counting, there's a line of the counting crows. It's a really sad decision I made at 10:30 p.m. type of deal. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a great line of the counting crows song, "Perfect Blue Buildings." Of um, it's 2:30 a.m. on a Wednesday. It doesn't get much worse than this. That's true. That's oh, a yes, Taco Bell. Does. Ad. <laughs> yeah, that's a Taco. Well, now so. Instead of that, now you have like a, a song by the Mr. T experience and Jed can't help himself 
He hops yeah. in the car and he has to have a chalupa right now. <laughs> I really like the idea of a new Taco Bell slogan where it's, you know, Taco Bell and it's, you know, the bell sound and, and the whole thing. And just a defeated, vo- uh, very defeated, very baritone, gravelly, three pack a day smoker's voice going, you might as well. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked before about the existential nature of it, but yeah. Taco Bell, because choice is an illusion. This is the only thing open. <laughs> you know you're going to. My my problem with Taco Bell at this point is that, you know, um, just being an older man and gastrointestinal issues, you know, being what they are, that um, my version of the, the chorus of Green Day's basket case would be, uh, sometimes I give myself the runs. I think that would be oh. the that would be the the new the new spin on the lyrics. If you're one of our uh, Gen Z listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, listen to Green Day; it's good. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, Basket Case is a great place to start. You're going to hear some words you're not used to hearing and phrasing you're not used to hearing in those ways, but that's fine. That's that's expanding your cultural palate, and that's nice. <laughs> And then look up what the members of the band Green Day look like now, and uh, it's it's just a fun juxtaposition. <laughs> well, speaking of ill-advised foodstuffs, okay, uh, go on. I'm bringing you this headline uh, from JuliaRoy's.com. Pastor Michael Todd pours syrup, sprays whipped cream on Bible as sermon illustration. Cool. Michael Todd, pastor at Transformation Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, recently poured syrup and sprayed whipped cream on a Bible and communion elements as a sermon illustration. He used the audience's shock at defacing Christian symbols to show how much more members should care for their bodies, which are, quote, temples of the Holy Spirit, unquote. Okay. Um, so there's a couple of things here. One is, I think this analogy falls apart a little bit, unless the fine people of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, are spraying whipped cream and syrup on top of themselves when they have dessert. That would be odd. That would be odd. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we putting this stuff on the Bible? Yeah. Um, it also mentions, you know, putting it on communion elements, which if you put it on the crackers, I mean that we could have something revolutionary there. Communion s'mores. Communion uh-huh. s'mores. Oh my god! Cracker, a little whipped cream, a little drizzle of syrup, another cracker. Great phrase, boom. bro. Great, great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and there's biblical support for it because at Pentecost, you know, the Spirit came down like tongues of flame, which melted the marshmallows and also melted the chocolate. So, boom. yeah, oh, yeah. Y- you know what? This is yes, yes. And I want to be clear here: my church attendance would become more frequent. And more enthusiastic if there were s'mores at all services. Well, as as often as you eat these s'mores, remember me. Yeah, I would. <laughs> Absolutely right. If you are, and we, I know there's a few of you, uh, someone in the pastorate or some level church leaders who listen to this podcast. If you want, to, yeah, I know that the is a big topic of conversation this time of year. Of we're going to get a lot of new people or visitors or kind of extended family members in for Easter. And how do we, how do we, how do we make, make a good case of them to come back? Communion s'mores. Yeah. Pretty big jump there. I'm just saying. Yeah. Strong. Yeah. I gotta be,
be honest, man. Like, there's all kinds of foods where, like, you know, sometimes I'm in the mood, sometimes I'm not. Like, you know, you want a cup of coffee? Ah, it's too late in the day, you know. Do you want Taco Bell? I don't want to hate myself in 12 hours. Like, you know, there's there's things that I would say Certainly. no to. I can't imagine someone offering me s'mores and me going, ah, it's, you know, I'm 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 fine. You're never too fine for s'mores, people. Mm. Never, ever. Yeah. S'mores is a gift and should be received as such. It's the free gift of s'mores. <laughs> I mean, it's right there in the name. You want some more of it. That's right. Absolutely. It's it's uh, you know it's a it's a fount that will never run dry. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. I think that really works. Um, so yeah, back to our friend uh, Pastor Todd here, um, which sounds like something we would make up in one of our illustrations to demean someone, That's... but it's his actual title and name. Uh, he apparently uh, said basically you don't care about uh, you know me pouring syrup on the Bible, and but you should not be out weirded out about that. Uh, you because you should eat better, which is look. There's a lot wrong here, and a lot we'll get into. But first and foremost, and again, I I point this out to uh, pastors, uh, paraminist, uh, parachurch staff people, uh, people who might be volunteering and might give talks. I know many of you listen to the show. As someone who's done a lot of the sermons over the years, I, I think I can safely say, if at any point you think this is going to be great, I just need to run to the store and get some props. <laughs> Danger. That Danger. is a good sign that you are going to be the only one who thinks this is good. Yeah, nobody needs Gallagher at church. We don't need uh, <laughs> props, guys. Yeah. Well, to that point, skipping quite ahead in the article, um, Somebody, you know, I guess there's video of it. So stop acting like you care about this, Todd said. He explained that people should care more about what they put in their bodies, the temples of Christ, than they should about what goes on the Bible, which is in some ways a true point because you shouldn't care about what goes in the Bible because people shouldn't be smearing things on books. That's weird. Yeah, that's yeah. just odd. But here, here is, again, from the recording, an actual in, in exchange. We get it, someone from the audience called out. Quote, no, you don't, Todd retorted, and went back to asking why people care about these symbols of Christianity that's not even about the place where the Holy Spirit is indwelling. Again, as someone who's done a lot of sermons over the years, if at any point anyone in your audience literally says out loud, we get it, it's time to, it's time to pivot. Yeah, you that's... should move on. <laughs> what you shouldn't do is say, no, you don't, then go back to your weird, overly long rant about something that is not that deep of a metaphor. Yeah. No, I'm going to double down on my props. I already <laughs> bought them. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't if I don't mention them at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the sermon, I can't expense them. <laughs> That's right. Oh man. So uh, apparently this gentleman, uh, which I mean, good for him, lost a lot of weight. Uh, seven years ago, he says that uh, uh, the pastor said seven years ago, he was challenged by God to improve his physical health, um, which that sounds like God trying to kill you. Yeah, a little bit. God challenged you to improve your health. That sounds bad. Uh, he then showed the congregation a picture of himself without his shirt on when nope, he was at his heaviest of 275 pounds. Again, you're going to the grocery store, or in this case, I'm sure sending an intern to the grocery store to get your your uh, your sermon cool whip. That's you should have <laughs> thought about that. You had to find a picture of yourself, a shirtless picture of yourself. You had to get that file. You had to give that to the intern who runs the pro presenter. 
Somebody had to check to make sure that it worked on the, there are a lot of times where you can be like, Hey, let me put up a shirtless picture of myself. <laughs> and weirdly comparing that to the Bible. Is that, should we not do that? Should I just talk about loving your neighbor or something? Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody would be surprised that in the still image that's on this article of uh, Pastor Todd um, covering the Bible in whipped cream, that you can see behind him on the stage is a poster of, oh, it's him. He has a poster oh. of himself. Oh, that's good. On the stage at the church. That's interesting. He loves him some him. He does. I wow. think that might be true. Uh, well, th- there's two follow-up questions that that feel like they're they're relevant to to unpack here. So the first is let's grant the premise. Let's grant the premise that that the validity and sincerity and efficacy of one's faith is directly tied to one's uh, fitness level and um, physical prowess, which. I can't even put into words how not how like not Christianity that is like that is that's super weird, dude. That's not only paganism. That's like really messed up forms of paganism. Well, Jed, you say that, but can you point out several dozen examples in the gospel where people are uh, physically disabled and Jesus still talks to them? I don't think you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Matt, I'm glad that you said that. Given that I can't, let's just go with with what Pastor said here for a second. I think my first question for him is, what's your bench, bro? And follow-up question, why is it not higher than that? Because surely if you are as committed to a life of faith as you claim to be, your your PR on bench would be higher than it currently is. So, like, do you do you just not love Jesus very much? Is, is, is that why you don't have the kind of gains that you could have? I would like you to repent and think about that a while. Jed, are you pitching some kind of pastor at trial by combat where if you're clean and jerk is more so than the pastor, you get to give the sermons now? Wow. I believe he is the one who has proposed this system. I'm just trying to make sure I understand the rules of this new situation. I mean... I think if you do give this kind of sermon, anyone in the congregation should be able to challenge you to a 5K. <laughs> it's good. Here's, good. Here's the other thing, though, that I think does go with it in the spirit of just I want to understand the situation is it is unavoidable in almost anywhere in the industrialized world that um, and you can pick whatever word you want, you know, natural eating, clean eating, whole foods, whatever. To eat the kind of food he wants his congregants to eat is much, much more expensive, like dramatically more expensive than to eat the way that that people typically do in the United States. So is his church going to cover the difference in everybody's grocery bill in order to be able to to eat in a new way? I mean, it doesn't say it here, but I guess we could ask. Ah. Oh, well, that's that's fascinating. What it does say here is, quote, fitness is an act of faith, Todd said. Notice it. Fitness is not an act. Exercising is an act. Fitness is just a nebulous concept. Yeah! <laughs> God has a huge plan for your life, and you have to have the fitness to actually finish the plan. Again, even a cursory reading of a children's version of the New Testament would point out that that is not true. That's yeah. Right. Well, and to Jed's point of uh, uh, what's your bench, bro? 
Yeah. Um, this is this is just something that uh, was sent to me a couple of days ago by one of my daughters. But <laughs> there's this thing where there's this you know there's this thing going around now where like if uh, I, you know it, it's one of these things that like uh, fussy white guys get bent out of shape if you know they go into a coffee shop and a, a young woman has a Nirvana sweatshirt on. Yeah. It's like they they see it as kind of stolen valor, and yeah. it's that. Uh, name five Nirvana songs for me, young lady. Yeah. Yeah. And, Noted uh, <laughs> underground art rock band Nirvana. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and this this thing that my my daughter sent to me said the next time um an, a boomer white guy asks you to name five Nirvana songs when you wear your Nirvana shirt, ask him to name five women who trust him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Lee. A, just an excellent burn all around yes. and a good plan, but also brings us to a good capper because here is uh, the kicker, as in the second to last paragraph of this article um, about Transformation Church. Uh, in May 2023, the church also made headlines by hiring Carl Lentz, former pastor of Hillsong New City. Lentz was fired from Hillsong in 2020 after he had an extramarital affair. Ah, so we hired Carl Lentz, but I'm pretty sure the biggest problem this church has is some of you like an extra helping of dessert? <laughs> sure. Just as as a public service to the to you know our faithful podcast listeners, if you were accosted in a coffee shop, you know, while wearing Nirvana merchandise, and someone demanded to know your top five favorite songs, and and you you didn't want to drop the nuclear grade burn that you heard just a moment ago, we just want to suggest to you these are five time-tested Nirvana hits that I think will definitely satisfy even the most incredulous um, inquisitor. And so uh, just remember these and keep them in your arsenal. You'll be ready. Number one, all out of love. Number two, we will rock you. (laughs) Number three, living on a prayer. Number four, I'll make love to you. And of course the greatest Nirvana hit of all time. Number five, hammer time. Jake came up with that bit entirely off the dome. I don't want you all to know that. Not only did he have five not Nirvana pop songs in his head, it was those five. <laughs> it was when he pivoted to boys to men was when was when I really sunk my teeth into the bit. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. The other option, which I've heard people on the internet say, which I think is great, is staring that dude in his eyes and saying, you can't trick me. Nirvana's a t-shirt company. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the solemn say that pledge that if any of you are ever any, near any of your intrepid co-hosts and try to pull that off, we will back you up. One yeah. Andy. Yeah. We will bring our, our middle-aged white guidance to your gaslighting of that dude. Convince him <laughs> that Nirvana is not a band. Never put out a band. Oh, you're telling me the guy from Foo Fighters was a drummer in another band. Sure. That sure. sounds real plausible. <laughs> With that said, we will declare. Uh, several uh, simultaneous emergencies oh. <laughs> <laughs> that we will transition to your fine questions. If you have a question for this. You can have us all the way to the end. I get some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down your episode description, click one of the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, I think I need to be more resilient when things don't work out. My initial reaction is to go to pieces. How do I grow in that? And I think it's a fantastic question. And Jed, where do we start with it? This is a great question, and I want to begin first and foremost with the idea that different things work for different people. 
One of the things that unfortunately has been circulated for decades now in Christian circles is this idea of there's one answer and you got to do the one answer and you got to find a way for it to work for you. <laughs> That's not how most of life works, man. Um, there's going to be some stuff that works for you. There's going to be some stuff that doesn't work for you. That's okay. So I'm going to suggest some things that are generally considered as best practices. Some of them may work for you. Some of them may not. And critically, the ones that work for you, you're going to kind of have to find your own versions. Uh, and that's okay. That's a, that's a normal part of life. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. This is a journey. And I want to commend you for recognizing that resiliency is a thing that you can grow in. Um, that it's not just some people are resilient and some people are not, but it's a thing you can grow in. That's great. You are already doing awesome by recognizing that. So the first thing that helps in general with resiliency is just the idea of acceptance, being aware that there are things that you have power over and things that you do not have power over. If we want to reference uh, an old and famous prayer, um, God, uh, give me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, th this is acceptance, and it's, it's a, a big part of resiliency. But critically, it's also a thing you can choose to do. In any situation, you can choose to, often by writing it down, look at, here are the factors I don't have control over, here are the factors that I do have control over. That's super helpful. The second, and you'll have to find your own version of this, is learning to see the possibilities. There is a truth that has been so overused and so distorted, oftentimes in business circles, that it's become kind of a joke, but it's still true. And that is when things go wrong, very often there are new possibilities that are revealed. People will joke about the idea of disaster tunities. And again, there's way too many mid-level managers that have abused this concept, and so it, it gets written off. But it's really true. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when a door closes, a window opens, um, you know, in, at the height of the pandemic, you can't leave your house, but that does give you more time to learn how to bake a nice brioche. Um, these things are not one for one. It's not that something has gone wrong, but something equally good is now accessible to you. It's not quite like that, but it is that there are usually new possibilities that are revealed even in hard moments and learning to look for those again is a task. It's a skill. It's a thing you can get better at that you can choose to engage in. The next thing is resiliency has helped a lot by finding some way to stay connected to other human beings, um, to stay connected to a broader community. What that looks like for you is going to be fairly individual. That could be through your church. That could be friends from school. That could be the people that you play Call of Duty with, it, it doesn't really matter as long as you feel a sense of connection to others. You feel a robust sense of community in your life. For most people, that helps quite a bit with resiliency. The next one is a word that has been kind of done to death, but it, it matters and it's important and it definitely helps with resiliency. And that is self-care. Um, that's a broad concept and it covers everything from bathing regularly to putting on clothes that you feel good about to um, it doesn't even have to be exercise, just, you know, some kind of physical movement where you get your blood flowing, um, you know, eating regular meals. And, and if eating syrup and whipped cream off of a Bible, it helps you feel better. That's great. That's fine. Um, but self-care is a good thing. Again, it's become almost a cliched phrase because it's been so wildly overused, but it does, it does matter and it does help with resiliency. 
the next one after that is kind of the the combo platter of activities that for you are some combination of fun and uplifting. Things where when you do them, you just feel better, at least for a little while. For some people, those are things that are in some way service-oriented. For some people, those are things that are just, I do, you know, Sudoku, and it helps me forget about my troubles, and I, I, it, it does kind of a happy little thing for my brain. It doesn't matter. Stuff that gives you a sense of boost, that is fun for you, that gives you positive emotions just from doing it, um, that helps. That, that helps a lot. Because if nothing else, you're giving your brain and your emotional life a break from stewing on the hard stuff and having a break is a big deal. Like um, if you needed to, to run a distance and you're not used to that, being able to walk part of the time helps a lot. And so doing things that are fun and uplifting for you is, is like a, it's like letting your brain walk for a while. It's a really good thing. I think another thing that is on that list that helps most people is recognizing that they will need to make adjustments. What I mean is when things go wrong, Oftentimes we're tempted to feel like, well, I have to absorb that this has gone wrong and make no changes in my life. Like I'm not allowed to have this impact my work. I'm not allowed to have this impact my education. I'm not allowed to have this impact my family responsibilities. And I just have to absorb the fact that awful stuff is going on. That's not realistic. So recognizing that adjustments of some kind will need to take place and that that is a okay, that that is normal will help a lot. What those adjustments look like, that I can't tell you because that's completely driven by the specifics of your situation, your work, your education, your family, your living situation, and it's driven by what's going wrong. But if something major is happening, it's going to impact your life and that's going to require adjustments and recognizing that that's okay and being willing to make those adjustments is going to help a lot. The last thing that is often helpful for many people is to be careful with your media consumption. Um, if so, for example, if for you, resiliency has to do with we'll use an example of eco anxiety. It's a super common thing. A lot of people look at the changes that are taking place in the environment and be like, I think this is the apocalypse. Um, if that's something that's wearing on you and that wears on a lot of people, be mindful of the news and the media that you consume. Because if you are onboarding a steady diet of things that make you feel angry and afraid and negative, that's going to make all this harder. Um, and so being aware that part of your role in resiliency is being careful with the media you consume, um, that is uh, – it's a responsibility that all of us have. It's not – it's probably the least fun thing on this list, but it's something that all of us look at uh, and need to. The very, very last thing that I want to add, and this is just a question for you to consider. I, I don't have a – I don't think there is one right answer on this, but you know, you say your, your initial reaction is to go to pieces. Okay, I get that. Developing the skill to get back up is critical. You are going to go to pieces from time to time. You are going to have a meltdown from time to time. So am I. We want to not do that in wildly inappropriate ways. We want to do, not do that in ways that damages our relationships and causes huge problems in our lives. But we're going to go to pieces from time to time. Not judging ourselves over that and not letting that be the last word. Be, you know, Deciding, if I do go to pieces, I can still get up and work the steps that lead to greater resiliency in this moment. I wonder if that's not part of the path forward for you and for me and for the rest of us. I think it's a wonderful place to start that off. And Lee, where do we go from there? 
Yeah, I, I, I really love Judd's response there. And, you know, I, I just have a, a few things to add to that. One is that um, there's there's a lot of recent uh, research uh, by people who are experts in, in anxiety um, about, um, not that that's definitely what you're dealing with, but I, I think about resiliency and just kind of the, the idea of feeling like you're going to fall apart. And I relate that to anxiety. And it made me think of some of this research, which is how much of our um, troubling situations we just care carry in our physical bodies. And when your mind is overwhelmed, one of the things that can really help is to not try to go through and solve all of those, you know, 13 or 16 problems that you're thinking about that are kind of knocking on your brain, but simply to uh, focus on only your breathing, um, to to focus specifically on your breathing and to get some breathing techniques that actually just kind of calm your heart rate down and calm your brain down um, so that you can either relax or if you were sleeping that you can get yourself back to sleep. Um, I completely agree with Jed that you've got to be able to recognize, take stock of and identify, even if that means list making, the things that you actually control in this situation and the things that you don't. Um, one of the things that I would love to to add on to Jed's response is I would encourage you that as you identify it, it would be really important to intentionally decide there are some things that I'm probably going to feel in the middle of an of a situation of overwhelm that I do not want to give any space to. And one of those is um, the idea of how do I think other people think I'm handling this situation? That is a thing that you do not need to give space to. Your stuff is your stuff. And you don't need to worry about how, you know, Greg or Susan or any, you know, the, the you know, accountant at work or the person on the train or, you know, anybody else um, is kind of thinking about or judging the way that you are handling the, the full plate that you have or the difficult things you're walking through. So that situation of like, you know, how much of this can we handle by taking a different tack with our physical self? learning how to pre- breathe differently, learning how to, to get control of, you know, calming your heart rate down, um, taking stock of what you can and can't control, and making sure that you're not wasting energy on things that really, really don't count, like how other people, um, you know, how other people perceive this thing. And then the last thing that I would, that, that, that's been a help to me in situations where I wanted to grow in resilience is I typically, um, experience the world in such a way that when I begin to get overwhelmed, it's because a lot of things are lining up that I feel like I have to deal with right now. Um, you know, the situations start dogpiling and then I, I start to feel my heart rate rising and I start to feel anxiety coming on and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that helps is I'm just going to focus my thinking, if I can't get back to sleep or if I don't have the, the ability to, to get out of thinking about this, I'm just going to focus on one thing I can actually do something about either now or in the morning or whatever. I'm going to put a plan in my brain for how I'm going to start to handle that one thing 
And when I when I focus down on that, then the other issues tend to blur a little bit. And as as my focus is refined and I actually start to get a strategy in place, my heart rate calms down and I start to feel like, oh, I think I can handle this. So those are just a few tips of some things that have helped me. Specifically, if you're interested in the breathing thing, um, I, I would I would do some some research on what's something called square breathing and triangle breathing. That just has to do with like literally a specific pattern of breathing that helps clinically proven to help with anxiety that can bring down your heart rate and help you focus your mind and maybe even help you get back to sleep if you were trying to sleep and you, and you feel overwhelmed. So those are some things that have helped me. And, um, and I, I, I think particularly, I, I think a lot of this comes back to the very first thing Jed said, which is we need to identify clearly what can I control and what can I not control. Once we've done that, then we have a big, le- you know, big leg up on how we're going to proceed. I think it's great, great stuff from both of these guys. One thing I would tack on the end here is um, you do also have to allow yourself a process. So if you get like significantly bad news or, you know, things aren't working out, sometimes um, a good place to start with is can I reduce the amount of time and emotional energy that the going to pieces takes out of me? We may not knock it out in the first round, but uh, if you if you kind of you know fall apart at the seams and then put yourself back together and uh, address the issue in some way, which is probably what you do most of the time, because again, there's just you have to do that to go through life. If you get the you know if you get home from work a long day at work and check your mail and find a red light traffic cam ticket. Maybe you, you know, fall on your knees and rend your garments and cry under the heavens. But eventually you do have to go online and pay the thing because otherwise, you know, things get worse. You know, you know that there's part of you that knows that. Um, maybe a good place to start if you're in uh, instituting the techniques these guys give you is knowing that you're not going to go from zero to a Zen like detachment and float through the world on step one. So maybe we can recognize the uh, the expression of our emotions as part of the process and work on a way to to fold that into a healthy uh stress management system while working on the great stuff these guys gave you without we move on to our next question it comes in and says when i pray i sometimes get distracted because i'm getting so angry can i work around this and i think it's another uh great question i, I will in the rare step, uh, offer a super practical piece of advice up front before I throw it to these guys, which is uh, if you're from maybe an older thing where someone always must pray for, you know, our leaders and the problems, maybe don't start there. Sure. Because, you know, yeah. you might get sidetracked thinking about your leaders and uh, understandable in a lot of ways. But other than that, Jed, as we, we move through navigating the emotional landscape here, where would we start? This is a great question, man. And so... As, as I often do, I'm going to suggest, why don't we try and de-spiritualize this for a second? Um, so prayer is meant to be a conversation. So let's imagine that you have a friend that you're trying to have a conversation with, and you've not eaten all day, and you guys are just going to, you know, you know meet up and, and, and take a walk together. And the fact that you are wildly hungry and it feels like your stomach is trying to eat itself is really getting in the way of your conversation. So if that were the case, right, we would say, well you probably want to eat some food. You probably want to deal with this hunger situation. And then, then the rest 
of the conversation would probably progress more organically. So why don't we, why don't we do that? And you would get that. That would make sense. Okay. So with your question about prayer, I wonder aloud if it's not a similar thing of like, Hey, I'm furious about a bunch of stuff. I'm trying to not think about that and talk about other things, but I keep coming back to my rage. Okay, cool. Why don't we, why don't we deal with your rage? And then like the, the rest of the conversation could probably, uh, you know, proceed at a more typical clip. Why don't we deal with your rage is one of my top five Nirvana songs. (laughs) (laughs) So with that in mind, I want to talk to you about how to deal with anger. Uh, This doesn't really have anything to do with your prayer life, um, but it does have to deal with anger. And if you are so overwhelmingly angry that you're finding that it's very hard to pray, we, we probably want to deal with the anger. So that's, that's cool. And that's fine. The first is, um, Again, if you've grown up in the church, you've been you've been told some really messed up stuff about a lot of things and and definitely about anger. Being angry doesn't make you a bad person. Um, it doesn't make you unchristian. Um, it also doesn't make you incorrect. Um, you you can be furiously angry and super like accurate about every bit of it. I think what's probably at issue and what I think I hear you describing is something where there's like this anger hanging out in my brain in a way that's just a distraction that I'm not quite sure what to do with. And I'm trying to figure out how to, how to do that. Um, so I want to give you some suggestions on that. Figuring out how to process your anger, figuring out how to metabolize your anger, figuring out how to recognize how to, how to go through the following life cycle. Bad thing occurs. I am angry. I will now recognize that I am angry. I will express this anger in a way that is healthy and non-destructive. And then I will let those emotions bleed off so that I can get onto and back with the rest of my life. That is probably a healthy cycle of anger for most people in most situations, but it also may be a new thing for you. And that's totally cool. That's, that's okay. So I want to suggest some things that, that might help. Here's the first thing, actually, you're, you're already doing really well because plenty of people, particularly religious people won't acknowledge when they're angry, like they're furiously angry and it's giving them an ulcer and they refuse to admit that they're angry. So like you saying, no, I'm super duper angry. Like you're already halfway there. This is great. You're, you're doing super, super good. Now we need to figure out how do we express that anger? How do we process that anger in a way that's healthy, in a way that's non-destructive, so that we can kind of set it aside the same way that we would want to deal with any strong emotion? You know, if you are super duper excited about your friend's, um, you know, upcoming surprise birthday party that you're planning and you're so excited that you can't sleep, like, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a fun, overwhelming emotion, but we probably can't stay there because like, you know, sleep is important. So how do we, how do we process these emotions in a healthy ways so we can set them aside? Okay. So a a few things that actually come up in in therapy, um, that, that help with anger. Uh, and these are, I am under no expectation that all of these would be a good fit. These are different strokes for different folks kind of things. And so hopefully one or two of them might work for you. You should try all of them though, and just see the first is paint a picture of your anger. And you might say, but I'm not a painter. Good. That makes it much, much better. The point is not to make a good painting. Paint a picture of your anger. Paint what it looks like. Paint what it feels like. Paint a picture of your anger. Because it may give you a window to better understand what you're angry about, which is a big part of what we are looking for here. If that doesn't work, figure out who or what you're angry at 
and write them an explicit, no holds barred letter that you have no intention of sending. <laughs> uh, I, I really want to emphasize that last part. You're not supposed to send it. So, like, don't letter, not email. Don't not type em- it into don't. something that could send letter. Write it out. Not a text message. Yeah. Uh, write it, either write it longhand with a with a pencil or write it in a word processor. Don't write it in an email browser or in a text message interface. Trust us. Uh, but that can be super helpful. Another is a thing that's commonly referred to as the two chair exercise. You'll generally want to do this when other people aren't around because they might think it's weird, but it can be super helpful. Get out two chairs. You sit in one of them. You imagine the person that you're angry at in the other chair. Go to town. Tear them a new one. Tell them what for. Tell them everything you think. Bust it out. If you need to yell, yell. And if you want to go really, really crazy with it, when you've said your piece, hop into the other chair and try and think about where you think they're coming from and try and respond. Yeah. Wow. This can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. If that feels too cerebral, if the art stuff feels too artsy, get a punching bag or go to a gym that has a punching bag and let it out. If you need to, you know, write somebody's name on a piece of paper and tape it to the bag and and go to town, that's fine. That's cool. Let it out. The last one, and I really want to emphasize the word trusted here, potentially consider talking to a trusted friend. Um, for a lot of people, a lot of people are verbal processors. They think when they talk. Um, and if that's you having a safe place to just express here, I am super mad and here are the things that I'm mad about can be really helpful. That needs to be a person you trust. And that needs to be a, an environment where you're making clear, this is not me looking for advice. This is not me looking to fix things. This is me trying to get stuff out of my head so I don't have to carry it anymore. Um, and not all people know how to respond to that. So you need to know that it's someone who could do that. Um, also a good therapist is someone who would be able to, to be that kind of, of, um, listening ear for you. Um, those are some things to get you started. That's not an exhaustive list. And there's about a million ways to implement everything that's on the list that I just mentioned. But again, I want to commend you recognizing that you're angry. Great first step recognizing that you're angry in a way that's kind of not going away and it's distracting you from things you don't want to be distracted from really good observation. Like that's really healthy. That's really, really powerful. Now we need to try some things in order to process that anger. Cause here's my last thought. The anger is not just going to go away on its own. That's right. And if, if that's the tool that we're going to try and use of just wait a while and maybe it'll go away. Anger doesn't usually work that way. And certainly not anger like this. We want to take a more active role in, in processing it. These are some ways that could work. They do work for some people. You'll have to find your own way, but you can do that and you can get to the other side of this. Again, really, really strong start there and leave where we close things out. Fantastic stuff uh, from Jed. I completely agree with all that. Just, uh, you know, Let's just talk about the prayer side of this for a minute. You're saying that whenever you go to prayer, you you get really angry. And I I actually want to commend you on that because there there's quite frankly a lot to be angry about. And if you are in a conversation with Almighty God, like and you're upset about some stuff, what if he clap back and said, man, I'm angry about that as well. My encouragement to you as far as the prayer piece of this is let yourself go to him with what you feel, whatever it is, um, with the, with just the raw vigor of all the stuff that you feel. If you, 
If you feel really sad one day and you want to talk to the Lord, talk to him about why you're feeling sad. Talk to him about the, the, the shade of the sadness that you're feeling. If you start to pray and you feel really, really angry, even if you're angry at God himself, I would say go for it. He already knows, and he loves honesty and vulnerability. He loves openness and would love to talk to you about everything that you're dealing with and why all that matters. I, I love all the things that Jed gave us about just how to process anger, how to think about it, how to deal with it. I mean, we know from psych psychologists and from counselors um, that anger is sometimes a secondary emotion that we use to compensate our kind of emotional landscape for other emotions that are not very comfortable to feel. Anger sometimes feels good, whereas other things don't feel so good. And so it, especially if, if we do all that good work to finding out why am I feeling this way and what's going on with this and how can I handle it in a healthy way? Well, part of that process is going to be in your prayer life, just going to the Lord with all the honesty of that. And if you you want a relationship with the Lord and you want to talk to him about it, what I can tell you is he wants to hear. When I pick my, um, I, I, I have a son who's a freshman in high school right now, and I pick him up from school. He has a learner's permit, but he doesn't have a driver's license yet, and he doesn't have a car. So I'm his ride. And when I pick him up from school, and we're driving back to the house, I just want to hear everything. I want to hear everything about his day. I want to hear the difficult things, and I want to hear the fun things. I want to hear the things that he's upset about, and I want to hear the things that he's excited about. And that's, that's the kind of guy that, that the Lord is as well. He's interested in you. And so um, don't feel like you're, you, know, you being upset means that you're disqualified from having these types of conversations. Actually, it's what he wants from you. He wants to engage with what you're actually feeling. I grew up thinking that prayer had to be a certain way, it had to be certain words, and it had to be in, in a certain order, and it had to be about other people. Um, and then if I did get distracted, I was somehow doing it wrong. When the truth is, whatever is distracting me is the thing I actually care about. It's the thing I'm thinking about and the thing I'm dealing with. And so whatever the distraction is, if the distraction is punk rock music or Taco Bell or the thing that happened in third period French, whatever it is, those are the things you can take to the Lord because he's interested in your real life and your actual heart and the things that you're dealing with, the things that you're processing, and the ways that you're working on growing and all of that stuff. My encouragement for you is he wants to be there for you no matter what you're feeling. So you can take your honest emotions straight to him. Beautifully put. And we are going to, on that note, move on to our final question of the week here comes in and says, I grew up with heaven being described as singing worship songs forever. That sounds not good. Is the description <laughs> missing something or am I? Another uh, fantastic question. And Jed, where would we go with this? It's a great question. And I appreciate your candor. So uh, this is what I think. And so hopefully it's useful. Um, if you've ever been... I was going to say in love with someone, but I actually want to even more strongly emphasize like infatuated, like your brain is just exploding with how, you know, obsessed you are with this other person. Um, when you're in that space, like the one thing that you want is just to be in that other person's presence. Like you just want to be around them. You know I mean? The, the old, 
dating standbys of, of dinner and a movie, like for people that are really super into each other, man, that's just a context for them to be in the same place at the same time. Like the food doesn't really matter. The movie doesn't really matter. They just, they just want to be in each other's presence. And I say that to say that, uh, at least in my reading of scripture, heaven fundamentally is about being fully in God's presence. There, there is this, um, this relationship that you have been designed for, um, you know, you, you, your true love, so to speak. And heaven is the moment where you finally get to experience the full bore version of that. And words kind of by definition are going to be pretty bad at conveying what that would be like. And, and we can kind of know that because probably the, in the English language, at least the greatest wordsmith who's ever lived, lived would be William Shakespeare. And his poetic descriptions of what it feels like to be in love fall pretty flat for me. Um, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day and what light through yonder window breaks? Like, yeah, I, I get what you're going for. And I recognize that like, you're like a million billion times better with words than I am. And having been in love and, and still being in love and having been infatuated, like, um, I, I get the comparison that you're making, but that, that's a pretty pale comparison of what those feelings are like. Mm. Um, and so I think that when you, when you read the really floral language in the Bible, I think it's, it's facing a similar thing. You know, yes, the Bible is inspired by God, but it's still written by human beings with, with the human being ability and words fail to convey certain things. And the idea of like, there is this existential drive within you. There is this fundamental thing for which you were created. And the dawning of eternity is the moment where it finally comes into, into full effect and, and, you know, sharp relief and full focus. Like, I don't think that there are words to say that. And I, and I think that the, the comparisons that you, um, that you see in the Bible, I think, I think that's why it feels like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. Here's, here's one semi weird comparison, but it's, it's just, it's something to think about. Right. Um, so I got my birds and the bees talk from my mom, I think when I was maybe like eight years old, something like that. And, um, she actually had a a book and it it was not a Christian book. It was just like a normal biology book of just, you know, it, it was the whole, when, when, when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, you know, and there's a special kind of hug and all that. But there's, there's phrases from that book that I, I still remember of like, you know, it's, you know, and, and, and sex, it's like it, it builds to like a certain kind of sneeze, um, you know, was something that was in this book. Okay. So I don't want to tell tales out of school, but I'm, I'm a grown man and I've been married a very long time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of what human sexuality is like. And here's the thing is that book wasn't wrong but it was very incomplete. And yet at the same time, I don't know a better way to explain that. Like (laughs) it's, it's kind of a weird thing to look back and be like, nothing that that book said was inaccurate. Um, it's, it's more complicated than that. There's, there's more, there's, there's a lot missing here, but like also you've either experienced this or you haven't. And if you haven't, I'm not, I'm not really sure that I could do a better job of explaining this. So like, yeah, I say all that to say, and this is your say that money back guarantee. When you enter the pearly gates, 
and you are seeing your creator face to face as the Bible promises and, and all fears are cast aside and all doubts are allayed. I think you will remember this moment on the say that podcast and you will be like, no, Jed, Jed was right. Like, you know, like the descriptions in the Bible, like they were true is just, but like now that I'm here, like I get it, but like, I'm not sure I could say it a better way. And in that moment in heaven, if you think that I'm wrong, just like email me from heaven and we will refund the money that you spent listening to this episode. Wow. That is a post-mortem money back guarantee. <laughs> you won't get that on most podcasts. I can guarantee you that. There's probably a good reason for that, but you still won't get it. <laughs> a lot of fantastic stuff there. And Lee, where do we close this out? Emails from heaven. Jed's next podcast uh, product. That's right. Um, yeah, no, this. Uh, yes, exactly. This is this is such an interesting question it's such a compelling thought um we do have a a really cool thing in in that one of the people who wrote uh in the scriptures in fact wrote most of the new testament had an experience a very strange experience where he was caught up in an experience of like finding himself uh in heaven and he wasn't dead yet and he didn't know how he got there. He didn't know what was going on, some kind of vision or trance-type state or whatever. And he said, look, here's the thing. I cannot describe it to you. And I can't describe it to you because there are not words to describe it. When people talk about these verses, they tend to say things like, um, the reason that the Apostle Paul can't describe what heaven's actually going to be like, is that we don't have categories of understanding. If he were to explain it to you, you wouldn't be able to cope with the things that he told you. Let me give you the best example I can give of that. Let's say that um, you're, you know, you're 15, 16 years old, and you find out from your parents you're going to have a, you know, a baby brother or sister, and somehow the baby brother or sister in in the womb of of you know your mom gets to carry on a conversation with you and you're like hey baby brother or sister i can't wait to meet you it's so cool out here you're going to love our family you're going to love our home it's so great and they're like what do you mean i would never leave here i have everything i need it's it's warm it's cozy i you know I, I eat through my belly button and um I, I I'm I have no problems or issues. I, I know, yeah. Well out here it's not like that. You have to you get hungry and then you have to eat and then um and then sometimes, you know, you fall and skin your knee. Well, why would I ever go out there? I, well, it's it's very difficult to describe, but but you don't know what a sunset is like. And you don't know what it feels like to swing on a swing set. Or to like, you know, to 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 kick a kickball and have all your friends be so excited that you hit a home run. Like there are so many things that I just, I don't have words to describe them to you because you don't have categories for them. The, the feeling that we get about heaven when we read about it in the scriptures is that we can't even understand what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a lamer version of what we experience here. Like, oh, uh, Hillsong, worship songs, like forever. That's it. Like in a kind of dark room with lasers and a guy doing a guitar stance. Like 
That doesn't sound great. No, it doesn't sound great. It sounds terrible. That's a money back guarantee cash in right there. I don't want to do that. But the uh, as Jed said, this is about being with the one that you love. And yet all the details are things that they're so far beyond our understanding that we can't like we can't be ready for it because we have no idea what he has prepared for us. That's actually what the scripture said is that it is it has never entered into anyone's heart what God has prepared for those that those he loves. Um it is not going to be a simplistic and uh, boring thing where you know you go to your church uh, and you know, maybe neighborhood church or a mega church or whatever, and a band plays worship songs, and you're just going to do that forever. That is not going to be it. But I can't tell you all the details because we don't have categories for them. This is something that is, it's it's going to, it's going to blow the doors off of my understanding, because it's something that God is preparing for me in ways that I can't even experience reality right now because I live in a broken version of reality. I live in a fallen version of reality. I live in a splintered and selfish and weird version of reality. And God wants to bring all of us into a fuller and freer, kinder, more generous and amazing version of reality. We don't even know how cool that's going to be yet because we don't have categories to put the descriptions into. I think that's that's exactly right, and I, you probably if you've listened to the show for a while, you've probably heard me say it many times over the years. Um, it's it's a good thing to remind yourself that anybody who uh, describes or writes a book or whatever about what what heaven is like is fundamentally lying. For exactly as uh, Lee said, there the closest thing uh, the scripture itself gives us an actual description is eye is not seen and ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the mind. You you cannot contain it in in this very simple sense. Um, the one of the defining things of uh, our concept of heaven is that it is infinite. You've literally never considered something infinite. You cannot do it. it. It simply cannot be done. Everything that we think of, every context we have for a thing is finite. It is beyond our comprehension right there. So, um, but yes, as as Lee points out, it is not going to be a church service that never ends. I think we can be pretty comfortable with that. It is now, interesting. If the church service had the communion s'mores, a little more compelling. Yep. If you're telling me that there are bottomless s'mores, which is also another way of saying eternal s'mores, I am ready. I am here for that. Eternal s'mores, also a very good Nirvana song that you can put in your <laughs> yes. top five list. Um, and yeah, absolutely. The the other thing about that is it is as just a stray observation here. Uh, no real place for this to land, but stray observation from your old friend Matt. Um, what does it say about a culture that has its two main descriptions of eternal paradise are a gated community and a church service that never ends? Yeah, <laughs> that is that is telling for many many reasons, and I think you're right. To be a little suspicious of it. Well, at least the at least the Renaissance. I mean, it's not it's not great, but flying undiapered babies. That's that's not a great description either. But that's not a gated community and an endless worship service. Yeah, at least it's interesting. <laughs> at least at least Michelangelo put his enemies, you know, being flung into perdition. That's you know, yeah. I'm not saying it's what happens, but if you're saying I want to describe my perfect world, I can track with you a little bit more on that one. S'mores and Schadenfreude. 
I can get down with both of those. Heck yeah, man. Uh, now I'm picturing a German s'more, and I just know they find some way to do something just nightmarishly decadent with the chocolate aspect of that. That's right. <laughs> okay, we're officially spinning out of control. I'm going to go ahead and end this episode uh, before we, we get even further from the dishes. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have a question for us, set podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Tell the song this week. This is a Jed Brewer worship song called This Is Not a Trade. It's a very good song. Yes. You probably wouldn't want to listen to it on a loop for eternity, and that's okay. Got that? Thanks for yeah. listening. We love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. This is not a trade. We're out to for you and you to for me. Somehow